is not a child. She is the flame, the white flame which will set fire to the world. She is the elder blood, Henecher, the blood of elves, the seed which will not sprout but burst into flame, and the blood which will be defiled when Tefdiedra arrives at the time of end. Nice. If you get that too wrong, then who knows what sort of magic you will invoke yeah, by right. accident there. But I put that quote there. It's like, should I include the elder speech part? I could just cut the quote off at the end there and not have her have to do that. I wonder what happens if you say that five times fast. My <laughs> five times yeah, fast, right. your throat would definitely. Yeah. That's your new Scottish rich watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's mm. right. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We're super happy to be back here today with another chapter breakdown. Today, we're going to be covering Blood of Elves, Chapter 3. Well, without further ado, before we jump into all of the awesomeness that is the podcast, I would like to introduce my co-host. we got Mikal and Aziz. Mikal, what's going on? How are you doing today? Good. Good to be back in the continent and with <laughs> monsters and witches and all that stuff. This is a, it's a fun chapter. We're still just basically in the intro zone, effectively getting things laid out for the big adventure that's coming. Let's do it, friends. <laughs> the chapter begins on the day of Middenvern, a.k.a. the winter equinox. The snow is falling, but as Cohen puts it, each day now brings them closer to spring. That gives them and us several months at Kaer Morin. We're treated to further debates and discussion, a strength of these novels, as the conundrum of Siri unfolds. What is best for her and those she impacts, a factor that continuously grows in scope? Of particular interest is the conundrum that she cannot do simple magic like Witcher signs, while also being a source and appearing to utter prophecy from time to time. One of those times is in this very chapter. She has great powers, but no control over them. That is ominous, to say the least. After hearing that the drink White Seagull induced a trance in Siri, Triss decides there should be a do-over and gives her half a cup full, having had the other half herself. The witchers are very much against the idea, but the girl downs the drink before they can voice their objections, so it's too late. Triss explains that Siri is like a magical transmitter, constantly emitting magical energy, especially during the equinox when such things tend to peak. But not only is she not in control of it, she's barely aware of it, but others are. In the trance, she and Siri envision themselves as seagulls, along with one of those others who speaks through Siri with a voice that is not her own. Triss explains it. Something wants to take possession of her, something which is too powerful for me. As unworried as she was going into the trance, Triss goes on to say that another one could be more dangerous for Siri than even the trial of grasses would be, which kills, what, seven out of ten? So those are pretty grim odds. Ten days of nightmares follow in which the Black Knight with the feathered helmet chases her some more. But then the nightmares just stop. In fact, all dreaming stops for Siri. For now. Triss continues to observe. Given the powerful entities targeting Siri, Triss believes they need to match that with someone more powerful than her to help. And that means, yep, Yennefer of Vengerberg, not some other Yennefer. Under different circumstances, Geralt might have resisted that idea, but since this is for Siri, it must be done. Triss agrees to stay at Caramorn until spring, at which point they'll set out and take Siri to Nenica at the Temple of Melitoli and contact Yennefer. That leaves plenty of time for more training. We're given a bit of a montage. She practices on the comb while blindfolded and armed with Lambert. She learns about makeup and elder speech from Triss, monster lore from Vesemir, dueling philosophy and tactics from Cohen, and the pendulum from Geralt. This presumably continues in similar fashion for several months as we jump forward to mid-February as the snows begin to melt. But their isolation continues. They did not want to know anything. They cared nothing for dilemmas which drove sleep from kings, wizards, rulers, and leaders, or for the problems which made councils, circles, and gatherings tremble and buzz. 
This bothers Triss, and she argues with them about their detached Witcher code. She's especially frustrated with Geralt, who's witnessed the atrocities of Nilfgaard firsthand himself as it pertains to Ciri. She recounts the trauma of what she experienced there on Sodden Hill, pointing out that she didn't have to be there. No one forced her to be in that battle. She describes how horrifying it was, how several of her friends died in front of her, how they didn't have to be there either. They claim their life choices are set because they are witchers. She points out that witchers live lives the way they do because of choice, not because they're witchers. There's no reason a witcher can't fight forms of evil besides monsters. Witchers are taught to kill one other thing as well, she points out, their own emotions. And Triss is adamant they not do that with Siri. Maybe you don't want to accept the fact that human emotions and feelings weren't killed in you by the elixirs and grasses. You killed them. You killed them yourself. But don't you dare kill them in the child. They were taught that philosophy, that which they live by from witchers who came before them. And those were in turn taught by those before them and so on. But those witchers lived in a bygone era. The continent was different then. Certain behavioral relics from Vesemir remind Triss and us of that. There were more monsters, more witchers. Kaer Morin was whole. Why should their view of the world remain static and unchanging when the world itself does not? It's left to the reader somewhat to decide, but notably the witchers have no good answer for Triss. And as if in agreement, Siri said in her trance, something is ending. A rather clear signal of change itself. The chapter ends with the arrival of spring, which is among the greatest recurring natural signs of change that exists that we know of and the departure of Siri, Geralt, and Triss towards mystery, excitement, and tragedy. So a pretty interesting chapter here, guys. Aziz, you mentioned that Obviously, this is the shortest chapter of the book. However, it is not lacking in content. We have a lot of budding of relationships here, budding of heads. We also have, we have different ideas and perspectives on what destiny really is because of how certain people's destinies have unfolded already. And we see certainly people come to a clash because of that. And then we also have obviously the influence of Triss, which is very important, I find, because Siri is in this place where she's kind of a loner and she's on her own and she has a lot to learn and she's up against these incredible challenges. So I found this chapter to be, even though it was short, the training montages were, which weren't exactly kind of eye-opening or anything. We got a lot about prophecy and these kind of developments and these relationships and in these characters. So that's what really stood out to me. What about you guys? Yeah, this is like just kind of a fun chapter. I feel mm. like it's it's one of our last with a, a very small cast of characters. One of the last with the Emily at Kermoran. And so it was very sweet. All the stuff that you, you don't necessarily notice on first read, but Cohen really taking on like a big brother, particularly mm. role with Siri with like playing the game and carrying her on his back and like all that stuff. And yeah, I don't know. It was, it was nice. I thought the chapter kind of, it was, it was typically Sapkowski weird in like, so here's the beginning of the chapter and this is written normally. Then we have sequence where there's just dialogue because I guess he decided that it was, <laughs> being too it was too annoying to write all the description and then we go back to like <laughs> the regular style of the book and we like escalate until the climax of the chapter but yeah i don't know it was, it was fun and it was it went by faster than i thought like i always i'm like okay i have this many pages to read but it it really flew i feel that way too because it sort of connects to the last chapter so cleanly that it, it's at some points like in my mind like when i was writing i didn't have that much trouble this time but when i was writing the episode two some of my notes, I put stuff from chapter three in there. And I was like, wait, this is chapter three. <laughs> so I had to move it. So we already like when we started working on this one, we already had some of the notes because they, they were like, I was getting ahead of myself. But but they are different a lot of in a lot of ways in tone, because there's a change when Tris is first arriving, there's a lot of things they have to sort out. And some of those things are still going, they still have things to argue about, but they've gotten more used to each other and Geralt and, <laughs> and Triss have their thing to work out, which which also is, isn't fully re resolved even in this chapter, but it gets them to a place where they're a little more comfortable around each other. You're right but, in that there is some of the same threads, but the build on the building on top of that, like these relationships yeah. taking different turns and these discussions obviously going in different ways. I thought that was a really good observation, McCall, that you pointed out that Cohen taking to her like a sister, that Triss notes that 
when he laughs, she's like, wait, have I ever heard a witcher laugh before? <laughs> and it's like, ooh, yeah, which sets up really well the discussion of emotions and how mm. they're not very emotional, which is one of the climaxes of the chapter. So I thought that was pretty clever. I hadn't really noticed that little bit of subtlety. I noticed that she had that thought, but I didn't connect it to the you all kill your emotions thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's a relation. That's totally related to that point. Yeah, we and, see Lambert acting like a dick and acting emotional. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And, and it's a, it's the same thing where even when he's he's a jerk, he still isn't a total jerk. Like even with Siri, he's like, it's more good natured ribbing where he's like, mm -hmm. you know, who, she's like, you did I really do a good job? He's like, who said that? Like you did. He's like, that slip of the tongue. Like you said, McCall, it's really endearing. Like these training montages, like even he is won over by her. And, and if Lambert's about, won over, then that says a lot. Yeah. And the thing I think about Lambert is that along a certain vector, he kind of sucks, but like you have to admit he takes as good as he gives and keeps coming yeah. back for more. I think he says she was talking gibberish about the prophecy and just is like, oh, well, then I'm sure you understood her perfectly because you speak the same way. <laughs> and it's like, oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like the guy you don't necessarily want at your party, but you totally want him on your side. <laughs> well, well, one thing I find very interesting is like the, the world of magic isn't alien to the Witchers. However, Siri is this very, very special character, right? Like her realm of magic and prophecy is like, I wouldn't want to say alien to the Witchers, but it is this completely different sphere. I'm throwing sphere out there. Uh, <laughs> to not shit on Lambert completely, but he is right in the way that he sees the world. He's experienced the world as a witcher, right? So he's experienced yeah, this true. one very kind of thing and Ciri's coming into this place and he's kind of like, yo, this is how the world is. It's going to be tough. And he, he is very honest about that. He's not, he, he's trying to be like, hey, it's not going to be easy for you. So he's trying to give her some kind of tough love, I think. Yeah, there's like a difference between pure hazing or yeah. like you said, tough love, where it's just one is just cruel. The other is has a purpose to it. It's to prepare you for greater dangers or, or things that you need to be tougher about in the future. And it's definitely more of that. They're not mm -hmm. there's no cruelty towards Siri here. The the closest thing to that is when Geralt gets really mad and uh, about her attitude towards revenge, which was a really good moment. McCall, you point out that, <laughs> that Geralt, what happens when he gets so angry, right? <laughs> Yeah, he Lambert is obviously calling Triss Marigold for the last chapter and a lot of this chapter. And then Geralt's like, cut that shit out. She told you to call her Triss. And then at the very end, he calls her Marigold. Geralt does. And yeah. it's he really apologizes like, right away. But still, he's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, yeah. Which is just, uh, yeah, they're all the, all the witchers are very different. But like, you can tell, I guess, they've lived a big chunk of their very long mm -hmm. lives together. Like they have behavioral similarities that I think that come out in that area. Yeah. Geralt really also steps off his, his fatherly vibes, I want to say, in this yeah. chapter, too. That's something that obviously really stood out to me. Yeah, I would agree with that. And relating to something you said earlier, McCall, too, that I think is interesting about this, he doesn't do a lot of describing, which is sometimes a bummer. I wish we had a better idea of what Care Morin looked like. But I don't miss it because I'm distracted by how the quality of these engaging moments between the characters. So. Hmm. For me, like if you're really focused on descriptions and like what's going on around and like what do these rooms look like and that might make you feel a little lost. But to me, that's well mitigated by the quality of the dialogues. Yeah, it's also really interesting because in those sections, I feel like one of the primary things you get out of writing description is like, what was this character's face doing? What were they sweating? Were they moving around nervously? And like you don't get any of that, but it's really easy to picture all the characters and physically what they're doing. He has shocker. He's, he's a really good writer. <laughs> so, like, he can just say like, stop. You're putting eyeshadow over your entire face. And like, I in instantly see this like eight year old girl, like painting with her mom's eyeshadow. Like don't close no. both your eyes. What are you trying to do? <laughs> it's, it's so funny because we're, we got this Im idea implanted, planted into our minds in the very start of the story, this inception that the idea of witchers can't show emotion. And we, certainly see all this in, like lots of individuality in this chapter you know what i mean and you can really start to kind of like parse out like little parts of their personality and start to go really get like especially like as you mentioned cohen earlier he's like kind of taking this bigger brotherly role for example and lambert he's had a rougher life but he's showing her the kind of honest part of the world that she's going to have to experience so i felt like yeah. sapkowski is obviously a master at kind of doing that for us You've mistaken the stars reflected of the surface of the lake at night for the heavens. Yeah, that line comes up twice more in this book, and I think it comes up in the other books as well. 
So we haven't been revealing spoilers in our book coverage, so we won't. Some of you already know who this is, but when this line is repeated again, that's the clue that it's that person. <laughs> also, the other clue is that this person knows Triss by calling them the 14th one and kind of knowing some details about their participation in Sodden. So I will also say that it's not the wild hunt like it is in the show. So <laughs> it kind of narrows it down a little bit because there's only so many options here. But anyway... I thought that was cool because that line, it is a pretty good line, even though I, I wrote it wrong and I made you say it slightly wrong, Kyle. It's on the surface of the lake. That's mm. my fault. I typed it wrong. <laughs> Stars are like the on the surface, not of the surface. Same point. It doesn't matter. So I, I think that's a good line, too. And so I'm glad that he, A, uses it as a descriptive mechanism, as a way of like showing how people can get fooled in a number of ways, but also that it's kind of like a hint when this line is repeated later <laughs> we're like oh that's the person who says that and they'll say it again like i said twice more in this book and then uh, some other number of times in the other books i'm not sure we'll, we'll, we'll count them later like we count <laughs> like we count pirouettes <laughs> <laughs> we had quite a few in this one yeah 17 we, st we started it like two years ago pirouette count and finally we reaped the reward <laughs> the payoffs it, it's like as as many pirouettes in this chapter as there was previously in like all the chapters <laughs> yeah i think there's more in this in this chapter than there are you're right in all the at least in this book i think yeah it outweighs all the other chapters but i didn't check the other books yet there's no a search of witcher novels website to first uh, try to do each book <laughs> individually i didn't do that for the other ones yet just to go back for a sec to the stars thing i don't know if this is connected but tris has this line when lambert makes the the sign of art and does the whole thing with the, the logs and she says did you think to impress me with the use of the same sign blah, blah 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 i can blow the logs from the chimney in a moment and blast them so high you will think they are stars and that mm. kind of struck me as like also like that idea of something being taken for something oh, grand and, and actually being a trick. That's a great call. Yeah. And there's so much of that wrapped up into this story. Like the trick of Triss not being dead in the first place. Like there's a lot of just small misdirections here. Trick with this particular that. character who's saying it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, a lot of it. The fact that there's other people after Siri too, not just this person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's good. chapter is the shortest the second shortest is chapter two and the sh third shortest is chapter one so it's kind of like the the wind up here it's not like the later chapters are way longer but they are like the last chapter is a good two hours audiobook length and this one's about one hour and ten so they're pretty pretty different setup but, is real for sure i agree yeah yeah there's a little less to do like the stuff is really important what they're covering here it was really it was really good but it i don't think it needed to be longer yeah i i kind of thought of this chapter as like being divided into three sections so mm -hmm. it's like the first chapter was the who of the story it was sort of a combination of like who is this being that siri is transmitting or whatever and also who is siri like in mm -hmm. her magical capacity the how was i think the the kind of training montage, edu education of a princess section. How does Siri become the person that she becomes? And how do the people interacting with her make her that? And then the why, I think the last section was where I thought of it because it's really Tris oh, thinking yeah. of like, why was she at Sodden? Why would Geralt join or like, yeah, all these all these motivations. And obviously Siri comes in with her like, the reason I'm becoming a witcher is so that I can kill the people who killed my grandmother. That is a really good way to put it. I really appreciate that built way you just broke it down because, yeah, the, the climax of the chapter to me is that end point where she says that's why she's doing it. That's her motivation. And that really bothers Geralt. And it fits really well with what kind of in between what Triss was arguing with the Witchers about saying, look, you, there's no reason why y'all can't target the source of evil rather than just fighting monsters yes you're built for that you are more effective at killing monsters but you would be you would be very effective if you tried to kill like evil politicians or something like that you guys would be very effective at that if you tried it and this is part of what's beneath Ciri's need for revenge is great injustices word onto her country like she's framing it as just killing the bad guys which Geralt which upsets Geralt but beneath that is Bad stuff happened and it should be answered. There should be these, this injustice should be fixed. It's not something that you can sweep under the rug and be like, yeah, it doesn't matter that all those innocents in Sintra were killed. Ah, big deal. 
Siri's got a point. And Triss is kind of somewhat on her side in that sense. And so I thought that was a good way to, in the end of the chapter, to put that under the spotlight is like, well, yeah, what are you going to do with this ability? What are you going to, are you going to go be really good or just kind of good? Or <laughs> what are you going to do? I also don't exactly know how to finally frame it. Well, but I think that's what it was getting at. Well, if you think about it too, threes, past, present, and future, we're learning about Siri's past and the people at Caramorn are certainly learning about who she is. And then in the present, we're learning she's doing these things. Why? And then we get the, obviously the, the prophetic nature of her, her trance and what that kind of means for the future of the continent. So that's kind of an illuminating thing too, right? We're kind of getting a little bit of that in this chapter as well. Yeah. Well yeah, I really like that. That actually also makes me think of something that stuck out at me when Geralt at the beginning of the chapter is talking about Triss having dual loyalties and how mm. that doesn't often work out. And I'm like, that's Geralt's arc. <laughs> like that is his like, <laughs> nice. and I, yeah, I think that right. might be why he's retreating to that whole, like, I'm a feelingless witcher doomed to die in a cave dismembered by a fleshy or whatever. Cause she assumes he's affected by the prophecy of his death. But I think what he's really sensing is that his life is headed in a direction where it's witcherhood or Siri. Mm. And they like that is, yeah. Mm. yeah, exactly. You have to pick one or the other. And so I think that's why he's so sensitive to that dichotomy. That's why I think time is so important in this chapter too, because we have obviously the, the lives that he, these witchers have lived. They're, they're incredibly rooted in this tradition that is Kaer Morden. And we see Kaer Morden start, it's getting old and the traditions of Kaer Morden are not, being carried into the future. And then we see the people who are learning more about who Sirius is as a character and they're learning that she's important in the now. And then they're becoming a little bit more progressive because they're a little bit set in their ways, right? But once they learn that Sirius is a good person and who she is and that she's special, they start to kind of change their tune a little bit too. You know what I mean? And they're trying to, obviously a big group of men when you're surrounded by men all the time, that's going to be a little bit different, but they have to be a little bit more sincere, a little bit more soft and careful with Siri as well, even though she is going to have a hard path going forward, right? I think that, that that's kind of like an interesting lens I tried to look at this chapter as well. Yeah, they didn't come out and say it, but the yeah. way they've taught her with what you said, Kyle, all these things that they can't do the same way. Like there are things yeah. that they are, they are very traditional, but there's certain things they just, they have to do differently because she's a girl because they didn't, they've only taught boys before and they, they're not going to give her the trial of grad. They're not going to do these things they didn't used to do. So with those changes to the way they're training her and the way that does that not spur on further changes, does that not imply... Like I said in the synopsis that, yeah, times are changing. Something is ending. Y'all need to change with that. And there's all this evidence around you. Your castle is destroyed. <laughs> your, your order barely exists anymore. You don't have to do things the way like the world is different. There aren't as many monsters. We saw that in Voice of Reason, right? Geralt and, and Jaskier have that awesome discussion about how the world is changing. And I think maybe some readers would see this chapter and, and notice that Geralt maybe has backslid a bit from the short stories where he was coming out of his, like, I don't believe in destiny kind of stuff. And, but he seems to have kind of retreated back into his old ways, maybe, well, probably because he's back at care Morhen, shut out from the world with winter and isolation <laughs> and all these things. And he's living in that and he's taking comfort in it. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to go back. I don't want to change. He knows what he has to change into, and he's not really sure how. <laughs> there is this, commonal there is this commonality between them all, too, in that they've all experienced tragedy in their past. Like, to become a witcher, they've all been, like, pulled apart from their families, and they've seen their friends die in the trial of the grasses, and Siri is there, and she's just, like, most recently experienced this huge tragedy. Only a few months have went by, and she's lost the most important people in her life. So I think the way they have to approach her, too, is in that understanding that she's also, that they have a lot more in common than they think. You know what I mean? I mean, even though they are from these two different groups of people. I think there's also something about, yeah, like trauma and, mm. and how you deal with that. Because I think Geralt seems a little bit at a loss. Like he's obviously no stranger to trauma, but the Witcher approach to trauma seems like get back on the comb, don't catch fear, all that kind of thing that we read in the previous chapter. And then it sticks out to me that... Mm the black knight is brought up several times and every nobody knows what that implies there's ideas of it beyond siri just like being a shy, a child in a war zone and experiencing that horror there's like the very specific something might have been done to her 
Yeah. Um, like, what does that yeah. mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think Geralt doesn't know how to deal with that. <laughs> no, I don't think <laughs> like, he does. You're totally right. Yeah, he has no idea what to do with that. That's part of one of the many reasons they're like, we need a woman. <laughs> we, yeah. need, and we need someone who knows what they're doing, a respectable, intelligent, wise in the ways of the world woman. Triss is pretty much was a damn good choice. <laughs> but I don't think they realized how much she would teach them. Like, not just about about things beyond how to raise a young girl because yeah that's a big part of it with any pretty much any training especially father like learning to be a father figure just as Mm -hmm. the kid is learning to adjust to their father figure it starts presented as a one-way street that turns into a two-way street you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. at first it's like raising the child then it's like no you're raising each other adult is learning just as much as the child these stories always kind of go that way. It's, it's very familiar and comforting and real. It's realistic, right? Because if you're doing something different as an adult, you're engaging in something that's a completely different life goal or life path, mm. then yeah, it's going to change you too. You're going to be educated well, along. Well, if you think about the biggest theme of The Witcher, if you really think about it, we're like, oh, Geralt saved Siri. But if you really think about it, Siri saved Geralt in the way that yeah. he changed his life, right? So that's like one of the biggest themes throughout the whole series, right? And obviously, The Witcher know that Nilfgaard is not a good place. So for the reason that she's there, why Nilfgaard wants her there, I got a pretty good understanding that, that, that hey, if Nilfgaard wants her, we should probably train her and protect her. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like, it's interesting that it doesn't go further than that. Like, yeah. the way they talk about like the little wars that they're used to, I don't want to make any assumptions, but probably if any of us were dropped into one of those little wars, we'd be like, Oh no! <laughs> this is terrible. I die. I die. I have a bum knee back. I'd be dead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like the fact that it's on a different scale. Hmm. Like I really, I think it's so interesting that Tris keeps trying to get them to talk about politics, and the only time she succeeds is at the end. She kind of has almost like laid that groundwork to get them to the point where where they will at least tacitly admit that their role is somewhat hypocritical. Hmm. And yeah, I don't know. It's a really interesting combination of that that idea again of being like exterminators, not policemen. <laughs> yeah, it, it, and, you, know. you do really mention a good thing. It's just like it's like I, I don't want to reference the Nazis in Germany, but it's like if you don't stand up to something like that, then it will become a problem later on, right? And we we see the Witchers stay out of politics, and, and, and it's, politics it's like, basically destroyed them, right? Yeah. Like while they were not paying attention to politics, a, a raving, angry mob came and destroyed them because of politics, like that they weren't involved in. Maybe they should have been. So you can't have that past. attitude. And going into the future, we, we we talk about the past, the present, and the future, and they're kind of like analyzing, like, hey, like we have to do things differently with Siri. Obviously, like she's not a man. First of all, second of all, she comes from this very different place. But it's just that that same kind of idea that you got to approach politics. But too, it's just like, well, Nil Nilfgaard, who's stopping Nilfgaard? Anybody want to raise their hand here? Like, you know what I mean? So they got to kind of have this idea and how to be smarter about things. And Kara Morton certainly isn't going in numbers. So they got to kind of like, it's, it's like yeah. survival, obviously, being one of the main themes of the books as well. This is like, okay, how do we self-preserve here yeah. as well at the same time? It's scary, man. <laughs> So I just really like the some of the detail of the individual training sessions, the way it's described. Like, it just I can't quite put my finger on it, but the way he writes it is very endearing. The way like it's just yeah. he's a father. And I feel like that this, some of that might come from like things he taught his own kids or whatever. Just the way he speaks to them, the way the tone of voice he takes, the demeanor he adopts when speaking to someone he's trying to teach something, the patience, the the leveling with them, like the way Cohen is just like. Well, yeah, I'm stronger and faster than you. That's just that's just how it is. You that's just there's always someone stronger and faster. Or the way he writes sword fighting with with great detail, like the the names of the poses and all this stuff. I have no mm. idea how authentic that is. It seems authentic. For all I know, it's just complete gobbledygook. But it, it's it comes off well, and I appreciate the level of detail in the description. Little things like Geralt saying, yeah, you're a girl, so you're different, but that's not as big a de- deal as you think. This pendulum thing, no one can parry that. Do you? <laughs> yeah, maybe you won't be a lumberjack, but speed and all these mm-hmm. other things, like it's not about hacking and slashing. It just that these kind of lessons would apply to real people. Like just because you're not as strong as someone else doesn't mean you can't be effective in other ways or effective in the same way using different methods. 
gives me a warm fuzzy. Zeroel is <laughs> a pretty part. badass name if you think about it. I would want to be called Zeroel. Come on. Nah, that's true. Yeah, she is pretty badass. Yeah. <laughs> There's also something interesting about that adaptation because I think it has a good and a bad side. It definitely is like you have to use your body in the way that it can be used. Mm. Um, what Geralt says about there's no witcher in the world who can parry a tail whatever some whatever tail tail or whatever yeah yeah. exactly (laughs) like don't worry about it but like at the same time i think that that adaptation is almost what is getting is keeping the witchers out of even politics and Mm. keeping them aloof from all the other problems in the world that like exist besides all the monsters and because that's that's how they've always done things and they've kind of just adapted to like the cruelties of the world and they're like this is our area we're staying out of every other lane possible (laughs) so i think tris is right to be like you guys view yourselves as doing a public good and like in a certain way you do but that is not necessarily what the world needs right now it's not enough yeah, right. Like, like you can save it, three children from a werewolf, or you can save fifteen hundred from Nilfgaard. Yeah, and when they're back to three hundred years ago, then yeah, there were tons of monsters, and there was a great need for this. And it was you were saving like each monster killed probably did equate to a lot more lives saved than it would in this day and age. If you're just doing basic actuarial math on the number of lives saved per monster killed it's it's the number has gone down you're right fighting Nilfgaard would save a lot more lives I want to go back to what I just said it's not enough I want to I want to give Geralt some credit for where he's come from because he had this he was like always shitting on destiny and I destiny that that shit is a joke like he's obviously come to a point now where he's accepted part of that like serious part of his destiny but at the same time it's not enough it's gonna come at you like Nilfgaard this politics this sweeping power it's like you ignore it long, it'll keep on becoming a problem. So instead of just doing what is enough, you have to attack it instead. You know what I mean? You have to attack the problem. Otherwise, there's going to be no solutions later on. And that's kind of where this state of the story is going. Obviously, we know how many people want to get to Syria and it's like, it's not enough. Like it's always not enough. So you have to make these sacrifices to get to this point of what is enough. It's kind of like a good metaphor for what you're saying, Kyle, just now is what McCall brought up earlier from chapter two when Siri's like, no, you got to get up and try again before the fear sets in. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, it's the same kind of lesson. It's like, don't let it get started. You have to fight this before it gets going, because once it gets going, it will be too much to fight or it'll get harder to fight. And that's going back in time. That is what happened to the Witchers. They certainly didn't even try to, as far as we can tell, to address their own reputation and what people thought of them. And that came to a head in pretty horrific fashion. That's part of their culture, right? It's been part of their culture in Caramord. And that's changing, certainly, with Siri coming there now, right? It's like, wow, there's this culture change in how they have to approach things. Yeah, totally right. Totally right. They have to change and they're they're, they're resistant to it. But I think eventually they kind of come around and understand it, even if they don't admit it. (laughs) When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's why it's pretty crazy. This chapter is the shortest chapter. It feels like so beefy, like for like, char- yeah. like character pro- progression, for example, like we see a it lot. It does of cover that. a lot of time, right? Yeah. It jumps this, this month. So yeah, it implies a lot is happening, even if we don't see all of it. They are relics from the age of the interpenetration of the spheres. Killing them does not upset the order and interconnections of nature, which prevail in our present sphere. In this sphere, these monsters are foreign, and there is no place for them. Yeah, and they go on to talk about ecological niches, and she's like, do you know what an ecological niche is? And she's like, yes, it's a... He's like, oh, yeah, I know what an ecological niche is. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> Why does he call it the interpenetration of the sphere? I know, <laughs> yeah, to, to quote uh, that acapella movie, not a good enough reason to use the word penetrate. <laughs> <laughs> is this an example of how Vesemir talks like this is what they used to call it 200 years ago and now it's just the conjunction of the spheres or is this like a bad translation or yeah I don't know but it might be a translation thing yeah it might be a translation if it was someone else speaking I would think just it's a translation thing because it's Vesemir it might be like a relic yeah oh yeah Kate Bertinsky says pitch perfect that's the movie you're (laughs) there you go that's yeah (laughs) that is a really funny movie (laughs) but it is important that we do get the mention of spheres in 
prophecy in the same chapter. Yeah, yeah. It gets referred to a few times. It's neat how at this point in the novels, like we still don't have a great idea what that means. Mm. We do because we've seen the show and it's ever everywhere else it's described. But if you're just like a first time reader, like what what is he talking about? What is this cool, like weird old spheres? Like, what does that mean? (laughs) Is that a planet? Is that a moon? Is that like what? what? But the people in the world, like for them, it's just, yeah, this is what happened. They don't, they take it for granted. It's a thing that happened in 1300 years ago and everyone knows about it to a certain degree. So that it's it's like, you don't have to describe it. Yeah. That's also an interesting, like, I don't know if it's almost a metaphor, the idea of an ecological niche and like, because the idea of witchers being holdovers from a, a different age and like almost extinct or like vestigial limb or something in this society is definitely a big theme through the books. And I'm kind of wondering, like, I was wondering why he went into the ecological niche thing. And I wonder if that's maybe just a little reference to like, again, something's ending this age, maybe not calling for witchers anymore. Yeah. Is he talking about themselves? Yeah. That's really, well, if you think, you think there, there is like a lot of Norse mythological elements, the idea of like the snake eating its own tail, these spheres being opened up, we the the realms of the Acer, the different realms, like, and that is kind of an influence within the conjunction of spheres, but you are right in that, in the sense that when your life comes full, you're you're born, you live your life and you die and that's a full circle. And then we're going through this kind of circle within the story as well too. So these natural cycles that we're seeing within the story of the Witcher and the Continent. Yeah. I think the actual discussion of the monsters was effective as well because Mm -hmm. the two monsters mentioned were very plot relevant. The talk of ghouls allowed them to discuss the trauma of the battlefields of Sodden and Trans River and all that stuff that Siri had witnessed. And then the gravier which gives you corpse venom if it bites you. That was almost certainly what bit Geralt in something more when he almost died and when he was reunited with her at the end of the short story. So that was pretty important too, which also, by the way, the Gravier incident is when we're introduced to, he actually takes Golden Oriole, which is mentioned here as the cure for that. So we see that happen. And that's also when he drinks Black Swallow and has those visions and sees his mother and all this other stuff. This is really, really dense for a monster lesson there's a lot going on there The idea of the past, present, and future, though, the witchers are moving away from the age of protecting towns from monsters and stuff like that, where there's like great industrial power of Nilfgaard. And they, they kind of, as you say, this last vestigial arm, Mikhail, this this relic of people who protected people. And then we have this Nilfgaard encroaching up, upon these other nations who are not protecting people. They're kind of just swallowing up nations whole. But it's, it is kind of does play into that past element of the witchers dying out. I actually think you could tie that into the the graveyard discussion because like part of what it's used for is to trigger series memories, you know, and like there's something really potent about the idea that that Vesmir is like teaching her how to kill graveyards and ghouls that come about in war. And he is not really conscious of the fact that like her problem is going to be less graveyards and ghouls and a lot more Nilfgaard. Like, yeah, the people that created those. Gra- yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really you're right. Like that is a really excellent way like to wrap up what's going on in the chapter the more implies the the efficiency of this chapter is the all these examples really speak to extremely plot relevant things that are yet to come or that have already happened like this yeah like that speaks to what tris was saying like yeah it's great that you know how to fight the gravy or someone needs to do that but wouldn't it be better to not have so much food for the graveyards and ghouls that allow them to proliferate in the first place. Like you could kill two birds with one stone if you could just stop Nilfgaard. And if you go back farther in time to before the witchers even existed or when they were new, the nations weren't as powerful. Like you said, Kyle, one of the important developments in Nilfgaard is the advent of corporations and corporations that are driving the actions of the state Mm -hmm. behind the scenes. They're starting these wars or encouraging these wars in order to profit on war factories. That stuff probably didn't happen on the continent three, four hundred years. That's a relatively new cultural I hesitate to call it an innovation because it's such a bad thing, but it it just probably didn't exist when the, the earliest witchers, it wouldn't have even been a consideration. It's like, yeah, we fight monsters. There are no corporate state king monarchies to deal with, right? Like the pumping out evil on a state scale, like that just didn't, that just wasn't happening, I don't think. And now it is. So yeah, you're, you're right to, to point to the past, present, future thing, because this is a thing that's just starting to happen. It's a part of the future. And to fight against that, 
that's what we kind of see like the bronze age you know, the, we get all these different ages and where humanity had swords and they had bronze swords and then we obviously we have guns and all sorts of crazy technology and stuff like that now and it kind of leads into the idea of like what the the witchers are actually teaching siri isn't enough i go back to this again it's just like they're gonna need her magic like witchers yeah they can help and stuff like that but like what's really gonna stop what's going on this this kind of like like larger schemes and this end of the world type of stuff Siri is a danger, but there's also this danger in this kind of like industrial complex of this country of Nilfgaard. And that's probably the most dangerous thing. If we I mean, really it, think it, humans it, are the monsters now, back, right? <laughs> it, yeah. And it goes back to something that I've been thinking about, which I'm not at all an expert in, but I just can't help but see parallels between like the kind of feudal small satellite states in Eastern Europe that were swallowed by communist Russia and the USSR. Mm. Like I, I, I think there's a pretty clear parallel there in terms of also like yeah. becoming very industrial, very uniform, very whatever. And like, it wasn't like things were great. Like those little countries, I'm sure had many, many wars. And I'm, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. So like the town where my family is from could have been in like four different countries, depending on the year, like it borders changed a lot. So it's hardly a perfect system. But I do think that there's that influence of a devouring power coming in the name of order and equality and whatever and a lot of these things that Nelfgaard like purports to represent that is yeah we can we can definitely see in some of the things Sapkowski probably experienced Sapkowski's commentary yeah. too is like about a lot like he likes to speak about a lot of these things that are happening politically within the world like that he's experienced in his own life obviously but it even speaks to kind of the things that are happening now in the modern day even though the, the Witcher books were started early on in the 90s and maybe even before that you know what I mean otherwise you're gonna have these nation states that are not going to agree with the sovereignty of other nations essentially <laughs> yeah the, and the, there's metaphors too for modern war amongst the example of these fields of corpses aren't just fields of corpses there's disease emanates from them wild animals are brought out and, mm. and can get closer to human populations people go into these battlefields to look for things or because they're nearby and there's live ammunition or mines or whatever that can still be very harmful so yeah they do have a an effect kind of like in a fantasy environment this is described as the bodies are rising and, and attacking people but it's, mm. it's a similar thing there's danger from the battlefield even after the battle is over it's a similar kind of concept one thing happens and there's this huge destabilization this is like not a lot not a lot has to go wrong on the continent for things to become bad you know what i mean we, we saw what happened yeah. with the elves and they got like completely pushed to the outskirts all these other races that inhabited the continent and they were kind of mostly living in peace for the most part and then we have all of these changes when men start to want to acquire more power like obviously they learn about magic from elves but now we have this e even bigger problem where it's just like they, they want to the, they're not happy with with the little part of land that they have and i don't want to say little it's starting to become a problem yeah and and going back to what you said earlier kyle in this section about humans are the real monsters that's obviously a long-term recurring theme but it's perhaps never as prominent as it is here at least in terms of how it's described because not only are we talking about very prominently how Nilfgaard is is worse. Sir, Chris directly points that out. It's like, look, yeah, the graveyards and ghouls are really bad, but the people that create that situation are clearly worse, and they kill all those people in the first place. They kill a thousand people or burn down a whole village. Not only are humans capable of devastation on a much greater scale than monsters, but they're literally creating the monsters, both by creating environments conducive for them, but also like mostly male magicians probably not all, but mostly from what we're told, are responsible for a lot of the worst creatures that exist on the continent too, like the so-called griffins and, and manticores and such. A lot of those were invented via some form of blood magic experimentation, or even if they weren't native to the continent, they were invented wherever they first were <laughs> emanated from, whatever other dimension they came from or whatever. However you want to frame it, they weren't natural even where they came from. The nature yeah. versus the nurture yeah. element to this as well. We see yeah. places in, in, in the real world now, like if you grow up in a poor area, you're probably not getting access to fresh fruits and vegetables as you would as some sort of other areas where it's more accessible and stuff like that. And you're right in that Nilfgaard is creating, is creating these new conditions in which people have to adapt. And it's like, if you don't adapt, there is going to be no chance to adapt further down the, down the line. You are going to have to be adapted into how they think. Because we see... 
the way that the white the white flame is being praised as this is kind of like this like messianic figure, this person with a god complex. You you won't have any individuality, which is a lot of what we see in this chapter. This beautiful individuality in all these different characters. So we see that stark contrast in what we see with Nilfgaard and all of these characters and. We get a little preview of uh, certainly how things are going to be going in the future, whether they're going to be individual and not just individual, but with each other in fighting back against something that will take the, all of that away, I think. Yeah, I love that we're having this conversation because it's like <laughs> kind of, it's really what fantasy is for, right? Like mm-hmm. it gives us language and lenses with which to view the things we experience in, in the world and like things that are kind of almost too big for words and, and yeah. without complex geopolitical explanations, we can kind of think about them through the words that are on these pages and the metaphor of fantasy. Yeah, Yeah. it does does work very well. You're right. Like, yeah, it is a little easier to digest when it's got this thick wrapping of unreality around it. It (laughs) protects us from (laughs) the real, the real stuff. And that's what Sap Sapkowski is trying to do with us here. He's trying to have these discussions like, Hey, we need to chat about these difficult things. Like we can't just ignore them. Like we have to chat about them in life because they are important. And some people ignore them and that's cool. They can go through that with their life, but he's trying to showcase the, the kind of consequences of that. If you do not. One thing that we want to handle separately at some point is yeah. the, the trial of grasses because it's just like it comes up so many different times. It's maybe a, a deep dive for lore example sometime. But that's one a, a good example of something that uh, is on the other end of things. There are some examples of this, like people who were taught to be a certain type of hardcore soldier in the real world. <laughs> maybe is the, the best example. Someone whose life is they're just trained their whole life becomes fighting and and they're very detached from regular society (laughs) it's a close and then eventually they out the society that appreciates uh, needed them no longer respects or appreciates them because they don't fit into that new society Mm -hmm. yeah i also while we're on the trial of the grass is actually i don't know if this is significant at all but like it really stuck out to me that the first little blurb we get in the opening of the chapter is on the third day all the children died save one a male barely 10 and that almost makes me yeah. Did they that's used a really to train good girls, yeah. Like, and it just none of it, none of them ever took because they didn't know what they were doing. I don't. Or know. or it was just forgotten. Like this is really, 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 really ancient writing. I like mm-hmm. the bit with Middenvarin and how that plays a role in the chapter, and just showing like how the magic is tied to the seasons a bit. I've always liked magic having an ebb and flow like an energy that could be tapped into and used in different ways and just different societies different cultures different individuals figured it out in different ways they give it different names and that's where a lot of the gods and goddesses come from in fantasy is they attribute these powers to being granted from these gods they just made up yeah yeah i mean the idea that sun gods summer gods give life and winter gods yeah. are death get death gods and change exactly yeah. you just observe what happens in the world and you put you ascribe that to gods and, yeah. and go from there so having it putting a little bit more work into that a little more effort into the world building behind that you get things like mid and baron where yeah magical energy peaks so it's perfect time for tris to <laughs> try to figure out what's going on with siri and to examine the energy around her i like the description of how he breaks that down saying it's she's picking up energy like some sort of transmitter like some sort of like a lightning rod almost it's detecting it and retransmitting it like a like a crystal a beacon or, yeah something like that and the Witcher medallions are like a lesser version of that. They don't retransmit, but they do detect. And all they do is buzz. But <laughs> apparently they buzz a lot on a day like Middenvarn because there's so much magic in the air. I just think it's well crafted. It's lore and craft coming together here. And he gives us not too much, but enough that we can have a lot of discussions about it and, and, and draw some conclusions and, and build a little bit of a framework around it, but not so much that it's all explained and understood, which magic shouldn't be. I don't think it should be completely understood. So that works for me. I do like the idea of the cyclical nature behind magic, especially in the, in the, the continent and the Witcher. Yeah, it makes sense, too, for the way things are tied to nature cycles for like it fits with that that same vibe, I guess. We learned a while ago that elves taught humans magic, but apparently they also invented makeup in this world. That makes sense, too. There would be herbs involved in that. (laughs) I don't know what they are, so we don't have herb lore this time. (laughs) Whatever herbs are in that in there, I don't know. 
I have to say, Sapkowski's description of makeup is not bad. All right. <laughs> it is hard to put on eyeliner. Like, Siri probably wouldn't be able to do it even keeping her mouth open. But yeah, that it's, <laughs> it was pretty funny. It's like, I can't do it. Much. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why we have Mikel on the show. She knows about makeup. <laughs> you certainly do not know about that. Yep. I, yeah. <laughs> Book the show. What what did you guys think about the trance in the show? It's very revealing. Obviously, we got some Pavetta. We didn't, we didn't talk about t- too much about her. Obviously, a big influence on the series story going forward. Yep. And of course, it was important that Geralt mentioned that to Lambert as like, yes, yeah, Pavetta didn't know she was a source any either. And then she just did all this stuff, almost blew up the entire castle of Sintra. And that, well, that shut Lambert up pretty quick. <laughs> as he said, Lambert may be boorish, but he's not an idiot. And then Geralt speaks and tells him of his experience. Lambert's not going to argue with that. He's going to be like, okay, fine. I was wrong. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was interesting because the POV of the trance is, it's still Triss's, but it's about Siri much more in, in the show than it is in the book, which it makes sense as a main character. But I was kind of thinking like, it's so interesting that Pavetta does play a pretty significant role in the show and she's not in the book. And then I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Maybe she is, though, because seagulls could be on the beach. They don't have to be over the water. Yeah, maybe Pavetta was one of the other seagulls. <laughs> or, like, just that's that's the setting because hmm. of things that happened with Pavetta. Yeah. Pavetta yeah. died in the water, oh, that's obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Pavetta supposedly died in a shipwreck so that does fit yeah that that's been that's not a spoiler we've heard that part yeah Yeah. (laughs) all right we don't know the whole story around that yet but that much yeah (laughs) so yeah that's that is a really good call i hadn't thought about that yeah and that's nice because of course it's meant to draw us towards the that's the drink was white seagulls so of course they're white seagulls (laughs) it's easy to not go beyond that but you just did and i Veta, white of hair siri blonde of hair (laughs) yeah Yeah, ash i guess it's ash blonde ash blonde i guess is the i do really also like the idea of her presence being there as well she's experiencing this thing which is alien to her like she's she's going through all these changes obviously she's young she's going through puberty like she's getting her period she's her her family has died she's going through all these traumatic things and the idea of her mom being there in this presence of all this past present future kind of like just being flown through her mind and body is i like that idea kind of yeah. the stabilizing element i don't mind the change in the show going from mysterious figure to wild hunt it's still the same people yeah. are after her it, that's not a much that's not really and it's not like this other being is not still after her in the show also so it's really not that much of a difference there's this like mystical element about the show and it's about magic and it's cool to have these characters and they're they're very beloved in the games and they're kind of like they did a it's really cool. good they like, really, really good job with the armor and the characters and Aridin from yeah. the wild hunt and I think that that's like one good change I think that that the direction we didn't get as much of them in the books but in the show could work I agree. Yeah, I think like fast forwarding the wild hunt a little bit is is no big deal to me. Like mm-hmm. you're saying it gives more meaning also to the prophetic elements of the story too. Like obviously, there's going to be some payoff. Like we're going to talk more. We're going to talk more about prophecy and the series destiny. It's one of the biggest things. One one of the biggest payoffs that we're going to have at the end of the story. Obviously, when we're done with the books. But I really I really like that. Another thing they took that they used here very effectively in the show, I thought, was just Triss's accounts of Sodden, which is really the first time we get firsthand accounts of it. We just get bits and pieces. We hear stuff from a distance. We know it's terrible. There's all the descriptions of, of what happened from people who were there, as in people at the first chapter, like the dwarf and the elf, all people who were talking about having fought there. But Triss's is far more graphic and intimate, and it's clear that this these passages are where they drew a lot of the action from. They're like the horror and the way they decided to portray the battle with the fire and the Jennifer's blindness and all this other stuff. That was, yeah, this chapter was crucial for the mining of the show's portrayal of Sodden, both at the end of season one and the beginning of season two. Mikal, you spoke about trauma earlier, like this kind of like, and I, and I also spoke of this idea about the shared trauma that we all see, like everybody kind of has their traumas. And it's important that we get that from the perspective of Tris too, because she is an important friend to Geralt and in his life and to Vesemir and this kind of situation. She's like trying to understand what's going on. And I think it's important that we get this perspective into her too. And not just like the 
the trauma that witchers have to go through, but also sorceresses go through some pretty crazy things too. We've got to forget that they lose their ability to have children and to be sent to this school of witches in this life and to lose your friends. That's like, this is a pretty big commitment that they're making too. Sorceresses make just as many sacrifices as witchers. And I think that's kind of one thing that we kind of forget in the story sometimes. Yeah, no, for Love sure. That. And I, I think it's, yeah, it's really important to have that as, a, I think, a really good way of ending, I guess, the part of the story where Triss is the main POV and, and central person. Like in the first chapter, we get that prophecy from Siri, and then we kind of come around to the explanation of it. And I think that's really well done. It actually ties into like the only real beef I have with the way they did it in the show was ending with Triss being terrified of Siri and like not wanting to be near her. Because oh. then when the show, it actually does give more agency to Siri. It's like she's she's a participant in the prophecy as opposed to like she doesn't remember any of it. All she gets out of it are nightmares, which is a take. Totally fair. Mm-hmm. But like she does have more agency in the show. But yeah, I was really I remain disappointed that because they, they become so much closer. In, yeah, in the book. this brings them together. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. What you're saying is it drives them apart, which is like, well, yeah, I don't really get her reaction there. Like I can understand being terrified of what she saw, but there should still be sympathy and, and care for this child. That was the reason she was invested in the first place. I think yeah, also exactly. like the relationship between Siri and Yennefer is obviously different too. There was more betrayal from Yennefer in this kind of situation too. So she has like less, less of an allyship with both of those women characters. But I do think that they're kind of setting up that Triss and Yennefer to like come in big for Siri at some point in a bigger way. They're kind of like setting up this, like they are in a way serious protectors and like older sisters or, or yeah, mom, sure. or mom, and, you, you know? and you can break things before you fix them. Like that's, you know, that's, that's part of storytelling. But Given the information we have now, I found it less than satisfying. Yeah, same. I had to agree with that. Yeah. Laughter, perhaps, heralds our change to our our progression to the next section. (laughs) She's at. Trauma to lulls. (laughs) Trauma to lulls. That is the Witcher way. That is. Sapkowski does that. (laughs) He's like, let me me rebalance that. I just hit you with some seriousness. Let me break it down with some humor or the other way around. Let me uh, me get my Lambert voice for you guys. She is absolutely a normal child. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny because, okay, so y'all, if anyone who uses Reddit at all, one of my favorite subreddits is the confidently incorrect <laughs> subreddit, <laughs> which is where it's examples of people that are so sure they're right about something that they're absolutely wrong about. This is a perfect example. Lambert, she is an absolutely normal child. Okay. There is literally no child on the <laughs> yeah. continent that is less normal. <laughs> she is the exact <laughs> opposite of this description. <laughs> yeah, like you couldn't yeah. be wronger. <laughs> he, in that moment, he was wrongy wrongerson from wrong. It's funny that it's it's funny that it's Lambert saying it too. It's funny that Lambert saying it too because we think of him as kind of a meathead, but he's not. You know what I mean? And just yeah. him saying it, this is funny. The honorable jerk. Probably my favorite line of the chapter is Vesemir's teaching her about monsters. He's like, what, "What's that on your eyes?" And she says, "Greater self confidence." <laughs> I wish someone can ask me that question and I could answer that. I cannot. <laughs> I love that. It's, it's also like so brief and yeah, I don't know. It's hilarious. She has no, and he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> he's so surprised. It's good. And then he's like, you know what? I don't want to know. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, it's just like an ecological niche thing. I, I don't need to, know. I already know, or I don't need to know. It's my new sword. It's real. A witch's sword made of steel which fell from heaven. Really? Geralt says so, and he never lies. She means meteoric iron, of course, forged from iron that fell from the sky, from heaven. Now, this might actually be a small spoiler to even you, Mikal. This is such a small spoiler that I don't think it matters to bring up, especially because just for the sake of of the humor here. In, I think it's a season of storms, Geralt reveals that they just tell people that. <laughs> it is a lie. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. That's yeah, they ju- it is not a sword. It does not fall from the sky. They like, do have silver like in their swords to like fight back werewolves and shit like that and like yeah. ghosts and shit, you know? <laughs> yeah, so it's totally just nonsense. He just lied. Oh, they all lie. It's just a lie they pass on. Yeah, like they oh just want, make, they want everyone to think their swords are more special than they are, but really it's, it's really just how expert they are with them. <laughs> if the witchers spent maybe like a little less time on PR and a little more time on just like helping other people, like they might, like a lot of things might have been different. I'm just saying. PR Mikhail, de- fire you- the PR department. <laughs> they don't have one. Oops. Uh. 
I don't know if y'all watch the show. It's always funny in Philadelphia, but there's an episode called Making Dennis Reynolds a Murderer, where they're spoofing the show Making a Murderer. And <laughs> he like kills a crow, breaks its neck or whatever. And they're like, this guy is a little creepy. He broke a crow's neck. He's like, no, but, but he's done it. Like his sister reveals like he's done that again. And then he back on camera, he's like, well, yes, there was a second time <laughs> and a third. I just couldn't believe the crow's neck was so weak. <laughs> the serial killer vibes. <laughs> and that's so here they're like, this is in reference to her drinking white seagull. And Chris gets mad at them for letting her drink white seagull. And then she's like, well, then the second time. It's like the second time. And Geralt's like, yes, there was a second time and a third. <laughs> <laughs> right, but the second time wasn't because of the seagull. It was because she fell and got a concussion. So it's fine. Yeah, so it's fine. We, we're, we're totally taking good care of her. What are your pro- What's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine is also related to Seagull, which is when I think Eskel is, yeah, Eskel tells Tris that White Seagull is a mild remedy for pleasant dreams. And she says, damn it, a witcher hallucinogenic? That's why your eyes shine like that in the evenings. I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I think this ship is alive and well, personally. I think too. I will say there is a lot of attention paid to that vibrating medallion <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're a little little uh, something else there, yeah. hmm. Hmm. but Eskel probably has one too as, and as we like to say that never did escalate the way we wanted <laughs> oh my god uh, <sighs> thank you I'll be here all the week yeah my final one is just like ending that ending section with Lambert like you can take off the blindfold now <laughs> like it's such a perfect, especially because she's like, should I do a somersault? And he's like, what do you think? Of course you do. You do a somersault. Of course. And it's like, it's like, all right, cool. And then you realize she's done all this stuff blindfolded. It's yeah. Hilarious. It's yet another thing that reminds me of how like witchers are like nerfed Jedi. <laughs> like they have all these great powers, but not not nearly as much of force magic. But what they do have are all things that force users do, like the push. And then we one of the first things we see Luke do is train blindfolded. Like one of the first lessons he gets from Obi Wan is blindfold training. <laughs> of course, Kate has to chime up at the end here. Horny jail for Kate as always. So for talking like <laughs> Geralt and his days. Well, yeah, we we got to do what we got to do. So you have some funny transcription follies, Aziz, from yes, our episode. That's right. We've been having some fun with this. Our new little feature, that our transcription software that I used to edit has provided us with some humor. It's very meta this time. The last time was when I started describing this to y'all. And wouldn't you know, the actual description of me describing that we're going to do this going forward is an example of something that got transcribed funny. McCall, please read. I've decided that whenever funny line or two or three comes up, I will share them with you all. And they'll be even funnier with Macau reading them in the care in this gray voice, for example. <laughs> M- not Macau, 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 like as in the, the country, <laughs> the country, <laughs> in, in the care. Yeah. See, the problem with adding care more to the dictionary in my transcription software is that it pops up in places where it's like too zealous about using the word care. It's all it also does that in other places. For example, this next quote. Oh, my God. You got Sandor Diego comic <laughs> Yes, Sandor, as in Sandor Clegane from Game of Thrones. That was, of course, when we were discussing last episode how McCall and I were going to see each other at Comic-Con, which mm-hmm. we did. It was good times. Yay. Been that long, <laughs> eh? Holy crap. Yeah. Well, it was August. It wasn't that long. Yeah, yeah it does feel like a long time because so much has happened since then. Yeah. Wait, was that August or was that July? I don't even remember. That was the end of July. <laughs> okay. But end of July. Probably... Oh, so we recorded it in July, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. But seriously, transcription software, do you really think... Sandor over sand, like you know the word San Diego transcription software, but you're like, nah, Sandor, not San Diego. S- Sandor, Sandor Ca- Diego. Sandor Carmen San Diego, two characters that are not in this story are apparently being transcribed. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure there's a fanfic about that. <laughs> <laughs> now here's one of just describing exactly what we're talking about at the end of last <laughs> end of last podcast. Next time you'll see chapter three of Blood Valves. <laughs> Blood valves. That is actually the book we're reading, not blood of elves. Uh, blood valves. That's kind of terrifying, to be honest. I don't really. Uh, <laughs> a little, yeah. No, it's a medical textbook. Don't yeah, worry. it's not so bad. <laughs> and then, last but not least, is a very confusing one that I'll have to explain, but is still pretty funny, I think. And all trace a bit strew with salt and Peter, with salt and salt Peter. 
Yeah, salt, comma, <laughs> Peter, as if it's being told to someone named Peter instead of salt, Peter. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's like salt, Peter. No, no, salt, Peter. <laughs> yeah. This is a nice, fun podcast for us today and some great things to talk about. It's a lot of character development, some prophecy. Had a little bit of everything. This chapter had a little bit of everything. So I felt that that was really great. I agree. That really fun. Sets us up for the rest of the book. Join us on our Facebook group, The Podcast Surprise. You can tell when our next episode and we do discussions like, hey, if something gets pushed back or if it comes earlier or, or we're going to be kind of doing stuff, it kind of goes there. So join our Facebook group if you aren't already there. Thanks, everybody who came. Yeah, thanks to Amanda for this, the donation and Ryan B., Rhett Crisman, Cato Vivas, James Gannon, Lucas Mies, LC, Alejandra Martinez and Neil Anderson for being monthly supporters on our anchor supporter platform there. Yeah, we will keep them coming. If you are so inclined, check out The Dragon Prince Season 4, which is the TV yeah. show that I write for. And it's on Netflix. And even if you want to just keep it on in the background, all the same <laughs> to Netflix. They don't know. And it would I'm on season. Awesome. I'm on season two, and it's awesome. So if you guys haven't checked it out. If you haven't checked it out, Mikal, obviously incredibly creative and talented, go support her by watching The Dragon Prince on Netflix. We got a, like, we got a superstar on our podcast, Aziz. Yeah, uh, we do. Yeah. We're, we're not, we're not going to be able to afford her for much longer, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because we're all being paid so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. It's been really fun. I know it's been a long time since we've been, since we've been uh, doing the pod, but it feels great to be back, and we shall see you with some more episodes soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.